I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 87 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Stephen Moore. Steve is a vice president and the chief security strategist at Exabeam and also the host of the new CISO podcast. Moore has more than 15 years of experience in information security, intrusion analysis, threat intelligence, security architecture, and web infrastructure design. Before joining Exabeam, Steve spent more than seven years at Anthem in a variety of cybersecurity practitioner and leadership roles. He played a leading role in the response and remediation of the data breach announced in 2015. Steve has deep experience working with legal, privacy, and audit staff to improve cybersecurity and demonstrate greater organizational relevance. He has been a member of the advisory board at Secure Auth Corporation since 2017. In this episode, we discuss adopting SOCs for remote operation, shifting the focus to credentials, SOAR, attacker attribution, threat intelligence, post-COVID-19 IT changes, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Steve, thanks for joining me at Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm quite well. Thanks for having me. Are you surviving? You know, it's it's the leading question I have to ask everybody now. Are you surviving the pandemic okay? Uh, yeah, you know, it it's uh, as, as, as bad as it is for many, and and it's a, a strain on many people and organizations, and, and even the, the, the human well-being uh, of many, uh, for me, uh, at a personal level, it actually hasn't been that bad. Um, we've, you know, you find ways to work in new ways, and um, my dog, Kemp, actually loves it because I'm home. I'm usually on the road quite a bit, and so... Uh, all things, I'm I'm very grateful uh, that uh, that I have what I do and and things are moving along all right. Uh, what about yourself? Hanging in there. Although I think my dog's starting to get a little cagey. The fact that we're all home all the time now because <laughs> he has his little routines of where he likes to sit during the day. Sure. He's just he's just a creature of habit, so he likes to be on the couch at a certain point, and we're just in his way. Like, and we're so sorry that we've inconvenienced <laughs> him horribly. But yeah, it's been interesting. You know, same boat. I was you know typically on the road 50, 60 percent of the time, either at client engagements, speaking whatever um and it's it's a very different cadence to kind of have that groundhog day of waking up every day and going what day is today um but i have to say you know the one thing is you know cybersecurity has not slowed down uh seem to be busy than ever have you noticed either at least in, in maybe you can explain a little bit about your role but have you seen things slow down uptick stay the same yeah so maybe uh, uh in that in that answer uh so again i'm i'm Steve Moore, uh, Chief Security Strategist at at Exabeam. Uh, so I get to talk to uh, a lot of people, a lot of executives, a lot of folks that work in the SOC. Um, and for the most part, the the change is that the things that you protect uh, and the people that do the protecting are working in different places. And so what does that mean? Uh, you have more uh, mobile or um, infrequently connected assets. And then the biggest thing that I see, or I would, I would advocate people think about is 
you know, something tactical even, what is your work from home policy? What's the document read? What kind of controls and checks do you have? And then in your SOC operations in particularly, what is communication like, uh, both the cadence of it uh, and the escalation of it? I, I, if I see a breakdown, it's, it's in those areas. Uh, you know, if you mess that up, think of shift change, shift turnover, um, the ability to find your, you know, tier two or team lead, if that's broken or more distant, uh, there's a greater opportunity for failure. So that's, you know, there's, there's obviously more themed uh, fishing and that kind of thing, but assume that that's roughly taken care of. I'm more interested and more concerned about sort of the health and well-being of, of stretched operations. Yeah. And I'm guessing, I mean, guessing with what you, what you do, as you kind of alluded to, you probably get a lot of touch points with SOC operations that, um, knowing some of those people, they're going to level one, two, threes to, you know, full people running that, that has to be a tremendous shift in the way that they're working, um, to not be in a place or, or just they're, they're again, that natural cadence of what they're doing, it must be very different for them. Yeah. And so, so many organizations already have, um, maybe a second or third shift. They may or may not be in the same location. They may be follow the sun. Uh, they may just carry pagers. And so they're used to working from home nights and weekends over a VPN, but that is in short spurts. It is sort of uh, following the sun. It is not persistent ongoing operations. And so, you know, in a time like this, I'll say that, you know, tech is important. Uh, operations is even more important, but leadership is most important to make sure, do you have a open and clear communication uh, to your team? Uh, what is your availability as a leader? Uh, how do we define or redefine success in times like this? You know, remembering as a leader uh, to share uh, elements of success. So what's a great story you're gonna tell this week about something your team found? Uh, how are you going to manage praise? Uh, you know, things of that nature, uh, the, the celebrations that should come in this job. Um, that is what's stressing people. You know, the other thing from a human side is you mentioned earlier that, that you don't even know what day of the week it is. Well, for a 24 seven operation, imagine that, right. Yeah. Not knowing what day of the week it is and thinking, God, what in the hell did I do? Um, you know, my work day, it's been proven is elongated. So folks are working actually more, not less with greater, uh, disruption, uh, you know, typically from their loving families and maybe even their pets, uh, so it's more stress. Uh, it's it's longer hours with less connective tissue, and so that to me, um, you know, I, I ran and built security operation centers. I work now for Exabeam, but but worked in um, you know lending and and uh, healthcare um, in in my prior life, and so I was a an intrusion analyst and team lead and director and all those other fancy titles. Um, so these are the kinds of things that have me sort of, um, the, I guess when I'm asked for advice, those are the things I like to mm -hmm. cover or remind others, uh, such as yourself and other, other professionals. Yeah. And, you know, certainly I'm, I'm sure you've dealt with this, um, in your career, but you know, it's, it's when people talk about, you know, cybersecurity or information security spend, um, when you have big sock operations and you can have, you can parade customers and CEOs through a sock operation with all the cool screens everywhere. Um, I would imagine that as you kind of alluded to, you know, talking about those successes and really, you know, talking about your return on investment has to be more critical now than ever. 
No question. And so you, you mentioned, you know, parading people through, um, if you have a facility like that, uh, today, and that's probably not getting used, that's actually a great, um, communication tool, a great relationship builder, and ultimately a sales tool to say, Hey, look at what we do. Customers are interested in security. Uh, we're going to invite them in. We're going to present to them on, on our capabilities. Uh, now you can't do that, right? There's no facility. So then what's your virtual um, sort of analog to that uh, is important. So do you have that capital? Do you have the ability to do um, a presentation offsite? Uh, do you have that presence specifically as a leader or more importantly, um, do your directs or the people that you work with because you're going to need to go. This is a time of crisis. You're getting stretched thin. Uh, how many people in your department can deliver that sort of success story, that, that um, client-facing uh, lens into security. Uh, and, and that's, that's an important transition. If you've not made it, uh, you, you've got to start working on it now. Uh, otherwise you'll, you'll kind of fall to the side. Oh, definitely. <clears throat> and, you know, I think with some of that too, and, and one of the themes I've always kind of had with within the podcast, but it's, it's communications, particularly at the leadership level for folks that are in charge of security, whether it be on the tactical side, you know, very technical hands on keyboard to managing people. But, you know, where, where do you see the, I'd say the, you know, the weight of the world of somebody's, you know, kind of resting on somebody's shoulders, where does that fall organizationally now for, for folks that are trying to either maintain their security operations or even try to expand it? I mean, we're seeing more decentralized workplaces. All of a sudden we're, we're now focused on a bunch of endpoints coming into a SOC environment. How, where, you know, who's kind of in charge of that, of really messaging that? Is it coming from the CIO, the CISO to the CEO? Like, where do you see that in that ecosystem? Yeah. And so you, it, it has to be something that is adopted as part of culture. We talk about that a lot in, in sort of the conversations I have um, with, with customers and friends. If it's a goal, then it needs to be one, right? And you, and you say, okay, we, we really care. You know, what's the first message you typically read in a breach notification letter? Let's, let's take it there, right? It's that we care greatly about security. You know, so so do you really other than than the breach notification letter when you have to, right? So, if you're looking to 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 grow an operation and and shift, so two things: if I'm wanting to to build out my organization, and I'm looking at the new world of what this might be, which might be 100% work from home. Let's pretend that, right? It, it it's a balancing act to say, okay, uh, what I used to do may not be enough where I may need to reallocate resources. So I'm still gonna need more budget in the face of, of falling profits. I need to be a good documenter and a great communicator um, to say, okay, how, how do I then manage this? Um, you know, some organizations are telling customers, excuse me, telling employees to avoid the VPN uh, because you know, they may be licensed for it, but their hardware won't support it. Uh, not that the VPN's bad, this isn't like a VPN bash. There's nothing wrong with the VPN. It's a great tool. But we're saying everyone's at home. We never designed this to be home. Everyone to be 100% remote workforce. So now they're doing provisioning directly to their cloud applications in sort of a rush. This is a real, these are big companies having these issues. Mm -hmm. And so what do you do? Do you say no? Do you stop that? Do you, do you lock your workforce out? So that's, that's an example, a micro example of, of sort of the, some of the struggle and, and the, um, the need for leadership and clarity uh, that we have right now. That's just, it, I don't think we ever thought we'd be here um, to say, you know, we've got a remote workforce, we've got a, a, a remote plan, 
but never did organizations, I don't think, think that they would be 100% remote unless they were designed that way to mm-hmm. begin with. Well, right. <laughs> excuse me. You know, along those veins, you know, does it does it provide an opportunity? You know, I think one of the things that we've, we've all struggled with security in architecture, security architecture design over years is, oh, you security guys are going to come in and impede us. You're going to make our jobs harder. I'm not going to be as productive. Are, is there a silver lining here where we can say, well, look, you know, we can actually be more productive. I mean, what are some of the metrics, I guess, that we gather on that to say this is, you know, there, there's something good that's coming out of this? Well, uh, I think that that one great thing could be uh, there has to be greater focus on on spend and on your so IT and IT security spend, and hopefully there begins to be unity there, especially as you move to the cloud. Right there's there's solutions there that can sort of give you value in both ways. Um, the other is is that you know when this shift happens, these are the times when problems occur. So the greater number, typically, the greater number of changes that occur in an environment, I'm talking actual physical, like wrench turning on things, you know, configurations, we know as humans uh, that mistakes will be made. And that's typically when we find these sort of unsecured, you know, buckets, you know, leaky buckets, as they say in the cloud, people know this. And so this is the time to, as we have this shift, as we have this remote shift, the sort of cloud shift, both of those are happening, to kind of double down and say, okay, this might be my chance to reset a lot of this. Um, and rather than relying on old tech, we can sort of say, okay, what does, what's my, my greenfield design of this um, as, a, as a migration? It's going to stink. It's going to be tough. We're going to have to work 20 hours a day for a period of time, but it may be a nice time to reset. Um, in terms of specific metrics, I want to go very operational. I want to know something, for example, if I had an executive, let's say, that had a laptop problem in general before all this happened, how long would it take to remedy that? And then now how long does it take to remedy? So if I have an endpoint that needs remedied or if I'm trying to run an investigation, if I get an atomic indicator, I have an alert, I get an atomic indicator, I'm trying to research how far did that stolen credential go? Or did it go anywhere at all? Is my investigative uh, cycle longer or shorter? Is it, was it easier before or is it harder now that I'm all remote? Those are the key indicators. And that's going to tell me, am I getting, am I better off or am I worse off? Are there areas of how many areas, of, are there any new blind spots that I have operationally, both from a security standpoint and a, you know, whether it's development, that kind of thing. That's what I want to know uh, as a leader forget security or IT, um, is my service better? Uh, is my, is my, time, my, my time to respond better or worse? These are the kinds of things that I think companies need to be able to measure and then articulate up and say, you know what, we, we're knowingly worse now than we were. And then here's our plan to get better. Or we're the same. And here's, our, here's credit to us, right? Yeah. Oh, definitely. You know, and certainly, you know, we mentioned there's, there's obviously tons of different technologies now from cloud to um, different ways to adopt VPN, hybrid cloud. Um, but certainly where we have more the, you know, air quoting it, but the perimeter on the endpoint, you know, when you're all of a sudden, are, are there specific things that you would say people should be looking for more on those endpoints now that maybe they weren't as focused on before, but probably should have been, uh, that they should kind of put into their design and alerting to look for those types of things. Because we certainly see, you know, somebody hits on a phishing email and could launch a ransomware attack, cross a VPN onto a, a database server. Sure. Um, 
So I think that the the threat and the vector is very much still the same. Uh, I believe, though, in this shift, uh, the things that we have to focus on, we, we need to start with the credential. So I don't care as much about um, a lot of the alerts necessarily, but I want to know the damage that's done uh, around that, the behavior of the credential. Um, so why do I care about that and why am I interested in it? We know that in most cases, and in fact, I'd argue that near all breaches involve um, at some point the utilization of a compromised credential um, and the sort of the theft and reuse. And then operationally, if I'm if my staff is 100% remote, what's one indicator that there could be misuse? Even something like a lockout. Well, how do I know if something is a a normal lockout, sort of a good lockout, or a bad or an anomalous lockout. That's a very simple capability, but when I'm operating on my password reset process that my help desk runs, how do you how do you manage that? You know, what what is that, what's that look like? So the first thing is is focus on the credential. If you don't have the ability to understand things like lateral movement, or if you're not um, tying it back to a core authenticator if you've got split credentials. So let's say we do a bunch of cloud provisioning um, and we have multiple accounts for multiple things. Uh, not a great thing uh, unless it's intentionally designed for like an administrative account, then that's understandable. Um, so paying attention to that. Um, I also think entitlement management is important. So we have credentials, but do we have the ability to know what entitlements that you have? And as the result of observing you, do we have the ability to uh, de-entitle you as part of response? And then again, more tactical, like I think organizations should go through, this isn't really a tech thing, but it's a capability, the spin up of a concierge group for uh, high demand, high need, high title individuals, whether that's doctors or executives or whomever that may experience this sort of, this distancing that creates greater or worse support to have a, a group that that handles this um, this change, uh, maybe temporarily, but it can also be permanently. So those are some of the things that I, I would uh, say to watch out for. I mean, I'm always a big fan, of, technically, of looking at um, uh, you know uh, egress traffic. So Richard Baitlick wrote a book years ago called Extrusion Detection, which is still one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. So looking at at um, at URIs and refers and user agents and things like that, 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 that can, that can sort of allow you to, to, to see strange behavior, both on prem and the cloud. So that's, that's, that's some of the stuff I'd start on. Sure. Or think about it. Yeah. You know, and it's certainly, you know, the big thing that I, I think is kind of interesting now, I know certainly when we play buzzword bingo, but SOARS become a, a big, bigger topic, I would say in the past couple of years, you know, we talk about uh, orchestration and automation. Um, how have you seen those technologies, or at least the implementation of those technologies, even, you know, really a lot of it is process flow in, in organizations. It's funny, I look at a lot of the IR plans and people are like, oh, it's just SOAR. I'm like, yeah, we just, we just, it's the same racy charts we had. We're just calling it something slightly different now. But have you, have you seen that technology kind of evolve and is it, is it just a buzzword or is it something that can really be helpful? So I think, wow, there's so much here. We could spend a day on this. <laughs> Loaded question. Uh, yeah, no, no, it's fantastic. I, I really love it. Uh, I think that the tools that we buy or the mindset that we have, that, that response is a part of everything that we own, meaning 
there should be capabilities uh, within everything we own that, that help us respond uh, in, in ideally in an automated way. Um, the issue, there's several issues. One, I see people are too eager to automate something before they know the full scope of what it is they're trying to, to automate or maybe investigate, let's say. So we automate a lot of um, incomplete response it is a popular thing I see. We also automate a lot of um, uh, artifact or evidence destruction. I see that often. Uh, where you know we have this sort of uh, re-image machine uh, kind of response to everything that's that's maybe sometimes necessary, but doesn't give a complete view. I mean, go back to the credential. If we're going through and just nuking an endpoint, but not knowing, you know, there's a lot of lateral movement. Go look at the attack framework. How many methods of lateral movement there are that don't involve changing or modifying or malware on the endpoint? Like it's it's truly just a hop from to left to right. And so um, SOAR needs to understand that as, as a mindset, you know, I was recently talking to a CISO, um, sort of this headcount versus automation discussion around SOAR and around investigations. And, you know, his comment was many CISOs don't spend enough time trying to figure out why are they wanting to automate and, and, what's the real value of it? You know, he says he's got a whole matrix of, you know, it needs to be high volume, low value to start. Um, and, and I find that fascinating that, you know, he spends two months before he spent two months before his sort of evaluating the use cases before they even want to touch tech. Um, so SOAR is fantastic. It's a mindset that we need to have. We just need to make sure that we know the full scope of a disaster before we respond. Um, one more statement I have on that. If you have a breach and you bring in an expensive uh, third party to help you evaluate the breach and then clean up afterward, there's two main things that happen there. So if we work backwards from crisis and figure out how to train like we should be fighting, uh, there's two things. One is a remediation event which is to throw the adversary out. But the thing that allows that to happen is they build a timeline. Got it? So if we're just doing a bunch of remediation events and not building timelines, the timeline itself tells you where the sort of the scope, you know, how far to the, what's the blast radius. And so I want people to focus more on the blast radius before they focus more on uh, sort of bits and pieces of automation for response. No, it was, I said a lot there. No, no, it's great. You know, and it brings up a good point too. You know, I, th I think a lot of it from the the response side, and, and having been on the, the expensive consultant that gets brought in, ironically <laughs> enough, there's been so many times where I told clients, you know, you know, remember when I gave you that proposal for a security assessment that was about a I don't know tenth of what we're paying, what you're paying me now. <laughs> you're paying me now, pay me later. I, I trust me, I like my sleep better than in my weekends. So please hire me for the proactive. But you know, sure. it's um. Um, you know, with a lot of that, you know, it goes down to, there's been an interesting, I wouldn't say debate necessarily, I don't know if that's the right word, but, you know, when we talk about it, it's like attribution and do we really want to find, you know, was this this nation state actor? Because, you know, you elevate it to law enforcement, they may not be able to do anything. But in your kind of world, I mean, and you come from, from you know, particularly running healthcare operations, which I think has a little bit more of a gravity to finding it the attributable people, you know, how much do we really care about that these days as opposed to saying, okay, what's our mean time to res detect, respond and, and remediate and figure out that timeline. Do we care about who did it? 
Yeah, boy, another another thing we could spend a, a day on. Um, okay, so I think attribution is best managed by people that have their own satellites and weapon systems and navies and things of that nature. Um, it, it, the problem is, is that it grabs headlines. And so if you say, and I, I've, I've worked, uh, spent years on, on uh, working against foreign adversaries uh, in response to breaches and, and sort of the, the technical and political issues and, and legal issues that that causes, um, one would think that if you had been hit, let's say, for example, by China, that it would take a different path both by our own government and, and others, but it doesn't. So uh, private industry is left to defend for, you know, there's not a difference. It doesn't matter who breaches you, truly. So you don't get a pass if it's a nation state or a foreign, if it's a foreign country or, you know, a, a, a foreign entity. You would think that if government attacks business, that there may be a different sort of lens there. There isn't. Um, furthermore, uh, due to media and, and other sort of Michael Bay films and whatever else, uh, you, too much energy is placed on the who. Um, so who is it in the story and the narrative? Whereas most organizations, you alluded to this in your question, they need to be more concerned about trade craft. And, you know, if we were going to have a bad day, uh, what are the kinds of things that could happen and what are the capabilities that we need to have to not get caught flat-footed uh, to either detect, stop, or, you know, or, or at minimum respond. Uh, you know, so if we're, let's spend more time on that rather than trying to sort of do loading and matching in our SIM with some bad Intel feed or something like that. I mean, that, I see that often. Um, but the reason is, is there's incentive. Security teams get attention when they talk about Russia and China. And so they like that. They crave that attention. And so we spend too much time on it. Um, I've got <laughs> way more controversial thoughts on that, but that's, <laughs> that's kind of my take. Um, I, I, I will add one more thing. I think it does benefit a security team to study the observations of other breaches and other sort of narratives that would um, talk about, you know, the TTPs, the behaviors, some of the indicators so they're, so they're generally um, prepared and can articulate and, and have ways to maybe even share some of that information to contribute to the creation of it, right, but you know, not get caught up, but not get caught up in sort of the, the Hollywood narrative. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because essentially if you, if you have a, your, your IOCs are a bunch of <clears throat> IP addresses from a block in China and Russia, you know, attributing it to a flag is one thing, but really saying, okay, we, we need to figure out how to block and tackle is, is more of a, I guess, a beneficial effort. But you, know, you kind of alluded to like the, the, you know, threat intel and threat sharing, I think, you know, we're seeing now is becoming even more important. But have have you seen that, you know, particularly coming from organizations where I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you were heavily involved with ISACs and doing a lot of threat intel sharing in, in healthcare. But, you know, how do you see organizations maybe that are not within a regulated industry with a banking, healthcare or government, are they becoming better at doing that kind of threat intel uh, analysis, sharing, and collaboration? I think there's this is this may upset some people. Um, I think very few do it well, and I think very few. Well, I think too many uh, are quick to buy. I see this all the time. Uh, they're very quick to buy an intel feed 
and dump it into whatever sim they use uh, when they still have glaring needs other places. So they're willing to spend even a small amount, but put effort toward it um, just to say they're doing it. Um, now, part of that is, is they may have had an auditor or somebody tell them they needed to do it. And, um, you know, that that's all makes sense because auditors, if you make them mad, you can lose your bonus. Uh, I get it. But I, I think that it, I do think community is important. So what am I involved in? Do I have other people I can talk to for advice as an individual and as a team? Uh, do I have people I can collaborate with both physically and virtually to say, hey, um, I don't know what this is or have you seen this before? That's, that's a healthy conversation. Um, all of that is important, but it has to lead to if your outcomes of that program don't, don't lead to change within your program, meaning in your environment rather, then I think it's wasted time. So let me, let me explain that. It's more than just blocking IP addresses. It has to drive tradecraft around um, hunting. It has to drive tradecraft around better detection. And it has to drive even things like changing the risk register and the audit plan within your company. If it's not helping build that kind of intelligence, then I think you're falling short and you should probably reconsider uh, that program. Yeah, and, and I guess that comes down to some of it, and in, in, you know, maybe not every organization does have a good audit group or compliance, but it you know it really comes down. I know it's we've we've all beaten the mantra of a team sport, but do you still feel that organizationally, you know, maybe the executive group, the legal group, compliance, audit, uh, security, and IT tend to still be siloed at times, and they don't have that kind of unified mission. Oh yeah, I mean that's a that's that's a. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was a softball. I'm just going to let you swing at that one. But yeah, no, and, and I think that's the challenge that we've seen. It's, you know, it's it's somebody else's department, somebody else's budget, somebody else's problem, as opposed to saying, oh, geez, you know, <laughs> how are we working together on this um, to reduce risk? And that's the unsexy thing we do. We're, we're risk managers. Cyber sounds as, as cool as it can, but we're, we're really trying to reduce organizational risk. And that's not the, the sexy thing people want to talk to at times. So how do we how do we help organizations change that language to talk about the business side and, and maybe even get the cyber people out of our own way to stop being so flashy about you know, certain things. That's just mo nothing more than risk management. Well, I, I think that, you know, one of the things I get to do is, is, is chat with a lot of people who are vastly more brilliant and, uh, and, and, and they, they can educate me almost on a daily basis. And so Figuring out, you know, um, I had a chance with a guy by the name of Steve Person from Cambia Health. He was uh, a guest, um, you know, talking about, you know, putting, being in, being in other people's shoes, being, figuring out what motivates them. What's their definition of good? Um, being able to ask and articulate what are our customers asking of us is an important thing. Uh, so when we're defining kind of why are we doing this whole security thing? Um, if I'm a, a CISO or the the person over the sock, I want to have that in my back pocket. I was in my past able to build several programs based off of nothing other than customer demand. So I would see trends within, you know, inbound requests, uh, you know, third party review or, you know, where they do these evaluations, security evals. We didn't have a hunt program and I kept seeing it pop up and I already had a relationship with the sales team. I'd say, Hey, if I write this up, will you back me on the creation of this? And they said, sure. For adversary simulation, 
not pen testing, but inside the goal of it was to look ugly and to have the outcomes actually turned into audit findings, both for myself and outside. Same thing. So it, it's, it's, it's that creativity, but it's also figuring out what does somebody else want? Um, it's back what I mentioned before, you know, don't, no one really cares that you had a hundred tickets or hundred cases last month in your sock, but somebody might care that, that 70 of them tie back to, you know, one or two flaws uh, within the organization that you see. And being able to share that in a human readable form and maybe taking it to say, Hey, look, I'm going to add some juice to your, to your risk plan or your, your, um, you know, the audit plan uh, for next year, you know, reaching out, being friendly. I think that there's a, if there's one theme of, of spending a year interviewing CISOs um, it's a, it's, it's a lot of uh, humility, a lot of self-awareness and a lot of being a better communicator and listener. Um, and that this all plays into that just outside of the normal security areas. And so super long answer to a simple question, but I think that's, that's part of what, you know, go to your sales team and say, Hey, look, I want to help you out. I want to make you sell better. You know, here's one thing we do better than all of our industry peers. Like if you don't know what to say about our security thing, memorize this one statement and, and be able to generate that. Like what's the one thing of your security program that you think differentiates it from all your industry peers. And they're going to say, Hey, thank you. Yeah. I must imagine you must get that too, is like the, the general questions when dealing with clients, customers is okay. We're, we're, we're going to turn on some kind of logging or same note. What should we log? And it's like, you, I, that's like saying, I want to go from New York to California. Are you moving your family? Is this a permanent move? Is this vacation? Like you you need a little more context than I just want to go from point A to point B. So what, you know, what, when people ask that, how do you try to, not make that CISO feel dumb for asking the question because they're not, it's a fair question, but help lead the horse to water, so to speak. Yeah. So I think that, that you, if, if I had somebody ask me to say, Hey, Steve, I don't, are we pretending they don't log anything so far? Like they just don't, they don't have any logging at all. And they, and, and what maybe do we want to do now? Know. <laughs> it's just, you know, maybe it's just, uh, you know, event logs and windows, maybe going to some basic aggregator, but they, yeah, they don't really have that, yeah. that even basic maturity down. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've had this question. Um, I've had it more than once. Uh, it is a little bit delicate and, and, and many people don't know. Um, you know, we recently did a, uh, had a study where, you know, most organizations, um, don't even see half of what they think they should in order to do their job. Right. So from a general visibility standpoint, they believe they're getting about half of what they need. And I think it was just a couple percent that have all of what they need. Uh, so, so it's a a valid question. And I think a very real one. Uh, the first thing I like to see though, is, is, is study around what's my core authenticator. And I I need visibility around that. Uh, so something like, uh, windows, like you mentioned, I also want to see my remote access or virtualization. So VPN, Citrix, those sorts of things. Uh, and then you begin to formulate a little bit around identity, the human, uh, and then from there, I need a way to tie that ideally uh, to base events. So all the other things that generate security events. And so like red blinky things and the merger of those uh, starts to give me an idea or a timeline of when sort of the human uh, or the asset is, is how it's behaving, what is it connecting to, and then to stitch in sort of the other 
whether it's a DLP alert or um, a virtual execution engine alert or some other sort of malware thing. So that's where I start. You know, you can you can begin to learn quite a bit if you want to throw in, you know, four or five sources. Um, you don't have to start with everything. In fact, that typically doesn't work. Um, now, there may be other audit needs. An auditor may have said, you have to log X, right? You have to see Y. Um, and that's a whole nother discussion. Uh, so whether it may be like a, a database alert or, you know, DLP or something like that, but I'm going to stay very close to core authenticators, to federators, uh, to remote access. And then I want to typically pull in at least one other element of telemetry, um, you know, some sort of core security tool. And from that, I can begin doing some interesting investigation. It makes sense. You know, in, as we're kind of coming, you know, hopefully out of this uh, sooner rather than later, but we start to bring our systems back online. I keep looking at and trying to equate to people. Um, you know, we're in an incident response mode right now in the dealing with the COVID crisis. You're not going to put all your systems back online and play whack-a-mole with reinfection. You know, you have to slowly bring things online, isolate, and really as you go through um, <clears throat> that um, eradication, recovery, and lessons learned, you know, what, what are some of the things that forward thinking that you think maybe within the, you know, IT security world that we're going to see as changes and things that we're going to have to adapt to for the long term now that we've seen kind of a shift in the workforce and the way people are, are, are operating? Because there is that, hey, we're going to go back to normal. And maybe the normal state wasn't the best state that we're going to be in, that we have to adapt uh, or assume that there's some of this is going to be permanent change. So looking forward, what should people be prepared for um, to kind of, you know, manage and reduce that attack surface area two, three years from now, you know, as we grow from that two, three years from now. Yeah. So I think people need to make plans um, around having a greater percentage of their workforce remote for a variety of reasons. You know, there's been a school of thought. I personally like having uh, my staff all in one location, the people with which I work, I, I find it exhilarating and fun. Um, that's sort of the my version of, of leadership, and I find it interesting. But I think that there there are others who say everyone's got to be in the building because, like, that's just company policy, you know, whether it's efficiency or whatever else. I think this has been a a forced lesson in we know we can work remote. In fact, the reports that I'm seeing productivity's up, so they can't argue anymore that productivity dies when you go home. In fact, in in the face of adversity, productivity is still up. And so you're going to have um, workforces that want to stay home and they're going to be the, the, the employee, I think, is going to be a little more adamant for personal reasons, for health reasons, um, and, and they can't hide. So what does that do? The question I then ask across all of my frameworks is how does this change our outcome? How does it change our company goals? So out of the gate, like what do, is our is our definition of success different um, then? If, if yes or no, uh, is our product to the customer different? So is the business success different? And then what is my method in there to, to evaluate sort of security and trust in that? And so it might mean that my IR process is different. It might mean that my expectation of recovery is longer. It might mean that my disaster recovery process um, is, is modified to uh, make use you know, not only of it used to, we would keep offsite data centers for DR and BCP, BCP DR. Um, it might mean making better investments in the cloud to say, okay, can I run a cloud? What does a, what does a cloud only sock look like for a cloud only company? 
ask that question in talking about two years, three years. Um, how does adversary behavior modify and change within that same model? Because it does. Uh, so those are the kinds of things that, um, that I think that, that I would begin looking at. What's my service level like? How do I manage adaptive authentication in that model? Um, you know, how do I maybe not use the VPN? What's a VPN-less world for, for most of my staff? Right, that kind of thing. That's, those are the questions and the things I would flirt with for an organization who's curious. Um, that's where I'd start. There's, there's some interesting like, benefits. Like, yeah, yeah we, like, there was, we had, I would say, you know, I had a, an interesting situation where I had a, um, you know, employee that when I kind of had some, uh, some operational support that I was providing within an organization I was working for, even doing consulting side, but it really took some time to understand Azure AD and Intune, but we really decentralized the directory services to Azure AD and Intune. And it was kind of cool to be able to say, hey, you know, somebody had clicked on our, uh, a malicious link on something and the system kind of shut itself down, alerted us. We were able to remote wipe and re-image. Really everything they had was on SharePoint and OneDrive uh, and Outlook. So it was, it was a very quick process. And we went from, you know, detection and response to a re-image in under like three hours um, across the country, which – you know, having built <laughs> operational centers, you know, for years, that would have been a very expensive and costly implementation just to do that from one endpoint. And we probably would still had to ship things to reimage. But there's some interesting things now as we, I think, some silver linings as we get into adapting to this new technology. We say, wow, actually, there's some pretty cool things we can do with remote technology. Yeah, and I and I think that by the way, I just saw your other version of of Douglas drop. So there's okay. only the two of us now. Um, yeah, and to your example, um, I think the the question, big picture for leadership is, you know, what does what does my operation, what might it look like afterward? People are are going to want to work from home more often, and what stress does that put on my environment? And what is the staying power of of that work arrangement? I think it's here to stay. Uh, so then, how do we wrap solutions both from an IT and an IT security perspective around that that supports that. You know, you I, you, I mentioned earlier that uh, organizations, some of them are telling people not to use the VPN simply because it's it's not, they can't handle the load. And you can obviously buy more VPN concentrators, but maybe there's a different way to manage that workload, which is what you were just alluding to. Um, I think if I were in charge of a SOC, uh, I would want to know or begin flirting with the idea three years, five years from now as, what does a cloud-only sock look like for a cloud-only company, or what does a cloud-only sock look like? Period for anybody. You know, so, what are the what are the ingredients there of running your operations in that environment? Uh, that is incredibly exciting because the opportunities, which you alluded to, were there, but also the understanding of how does an adversary behave when it's in a cloud-only environment is different as well. So, concepts like persistence and lateral movement are different. Um, but also the opportunity to build things on top of that, that data, you know, look at a Salesforce and all the smaller, uh, apps that run the ecosystem around that. Imagine a version of that for security specific to your SIM. Um, imagine the opportunity if you've made this shift, uh, if you're operating in that way, how does it change something like compliance? You know, are there opportunities to build on top of that data and that information and thinking about response? It's, I think it's going to be an interesting, I think the human side of this has been, has been good in terms of us reconnecting, 
but also the operational benefit long-term, I think we'll look back at this and say, this is a, a good, a good motivator. There's somebody I follow that said that, uh, that the things that were already happening are just going to happen faster now. So these shifts and changes, this is just an accelerator. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that's what we've seen, you know, particularly as a lot of organizations I've worked with in that eradication and recovery strategy, you know, following that typical tiered approach to a degree with IR, you know, for us to stand up a new exchange server, get that ready, hardened, prevented from being reattacked was uh, particularly challenging in on-prem environments. But as part of a response plans, when you had ransomware events, business email compromise, and you say, look, you know, the only solution is to nuke from orbit um, this entire server. People are like, Jesus, that's our entire exchange environment. We got to rebuild it. Say, like, well, you were talking about doing an Office 365 cutover anyway. Like, maybe this is the time to do it. And I found a lot of organizations be willing to do that. Now, obviously, it's not a silver bullet. And then trying to get them tempered down in a point of not wanting just to get operations up and running without enabling things like two factor. So a week later, they don't have another compromise is a whole nother discussion, but it's like really, it really, I think it just accelerated the movement. A lot of people were going to, to adopt a lot of these other technologies anyway. Yeah, no question, man. I, I think that that's, that's um, maybe the hidden benefit uh, in all of this. And, you know, certainly, you know, kind of, talking about, you know, discussion with people at the CISO level, and you certainly have your, your podcast uh, for the new CISO, you know, tell me a little bit about how that got started and, and why you went down that route. You know, I always find it interesting why people decide, quite frankly, to give back. Um, you know, it takes time out of everybody, your, your own day to do that. But what kind of motivated you to kind of do something, you know, community driven, so to speak? Yeah, uh, look, well, it goes back pretty far. I'll, I'll try to cap it. But uh I wanted an outlet where I could have conversations with folks that were willing to share about their own uh, leadership experiences, both good and bad. And, and I, you know, we have, there's many different podcasts in tech. Uh, I was especially drawn to creating something that was a, a leader, a security leadership podcast in particular. I think that we need to spend more time on that. Um, you know, I want to be able to answer the question or point to the people that say, you know, who do we look to to be great security leaders? There's a lot of famous security people, uh, but who are the leaders? And I think the answer is a little bit of everyone, honestly. And so we all have a story or example. And um, Exabeam uh, was was happy to to entertain the creation of a podcast and paying for a podcast. Uh, it's we're. Exabeam sponsors it, but we don't talk about our technology. We don't talk about any tech. It's truly an interview of the individual, um, which has been so much fun. Uh, I, I've, it's one of the best pieces of my job. And it's really, you know, some of the guests, I think it's been a growth moment for them too, that have never maybe been interviewed. Uh, and, and they share their, some of their more sensitive professional moments uh, is, is not easy. So it's, we really have a good time. Um, so credit to Exabeam and, and credit for the guests, uh, to the guests that, that have, that have joined, uh, and, and are willing to share some, sometimes some personal stuff. So that's, yeah. that's some of the, the start. Um, uh, but it, it's been awesome. Yeah. I find the same thing. A very, very rewarding experience has helped, you know, it's been almost therapeutic or cathartic for me. And I think I've gotten a lot 
out from folks that have said, yeah, I'm glad you asked that. You know, I've been really wanting to say something. But I also find that's really interesting, you know, when you do, oh gosh, this is this, this will be the 86, 87th recording. But, you know, there's certain meta-analysis that happens across all of it or, or themes that I've been able to tease out and take away. With the ones that you've done, do you see a common thread among these folks um, that you would say, wow, that's interesting. I, I wouldn't have expected that or maybe you did expect it, but it's something that you see that's a commonality. You know, there, there's kind of two types uh, to get a little uh, maybe crazy. You know, there, there's sort of the, the resume bullet items and there's sort of the, the eulogy bullet items. You know, there's the things that that are tactically interesting and skill-based and there's the other things that, that you might instead see listed or people might remember, um, you know, after you're gone. So, so leadership elements and uncovering both of those has been a lot of fun. And so, you know, tactically, you know, I had somebody talk about the creation of drawer statements um, for uh, incident environments and incident scenarios, which is basically predefined messaging uh, as part of IR that the way they went about building that out as uh, so a CISO of uh, Estee Lauder uh, involving others was sort of a, a, a tabletop of sorts. And that's a very tactically usable thing. And it's a leadership bit of advice. Um, you know, the other thing that, that I think is interesting, you know, we've had a, several guests get on that were newer CISOs and they talk about what's it like to go from a, being a doer to a CISO, uh, which has been a nice theme because there's, many of the listeners are maybe not yet a CISO. So they're sort of, or maybe a brand new CISO. And so what's that, what's that path like? Uh, and, and then how do you sort of understand what the executives want? Um, you know, thematically, there was another one. Uh, we we ended, up, ended up talking about automation quite a bit, um, which is pretty interesting of, of how do you evaluate that? And um, you know, one theme I think that's come across is how to interview better as a CISO. Uh, I've had that come up as a theme, I bet five or six times. So asking better questions. So it's been a whole variety of things. I mean, we get into, um, anything goes for the most part. That's great. Well, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Where can people find your podcast and other things you're up to online? Yeah. So uh, in terms of the podcast, it's just exabeam.com forward slash podcast. It's uh, if you're searching for it uh, on uh, iTunes uh, or, or uh, whatever your platform is of choice, it's the new CISO. Uh, you can also search by my name uh, in combination with that. And uh, the best way to get a hold of me is, uh, is LinkedIn. And uh, I, I registered years ago. So I actually have my name. Uh, Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, middle initial R, last name, Moore, M-O-O-R-E. Great. I'll be sure to put all that in the show notes. And uh, again, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today to speak with us. Uh, thank you for having me. Thanks, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.